0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. This is the perfect and holy word of God. Does any one of you, when he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint those who are no account in the church as judges? I say this to your shame. Is it really this way? There's not one wise man among you who will be able to pass judgment between his brothers? On the contrary... Brother is tried with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a failure for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We ask that you open our eyes, uh, give us clarity, Lord God, And uh, and let us walk in the power of the Spirit that comes from knowing Your Word, Lord Jesus. And uh, Lord, just just be. We know You're with us here today, present with us, Lord. But we just ask You to illuminate the Scriptures for us in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. You may be seated. So, Paul once again is confronting evil in the Corinthian church in the form of factions. And now he moves on to yet another issue among them. And in this new issue, there are three areas of misunderstanding that these believers had, these, these, uh, these false ways of thinking that they had bought into. First, they misunderstood their true spiritual position in comparison to the rest of the world, the unbelieving world. Uh, they misunderstood the attitude they should have in relation to to one another their brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church and they misunderstood the character they should exhibit in relation to God's standard for conduct amongst the Christ followers the believers in the church so first let's look at the true rank of Christians okay uh, their position their spiritual position and Paul begins with asking a question he says in uh, 6:1 does any one of you When he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So he uses these words. He starts with the words, a case against. And that's translated from three Greek words. And uh, those words were commonly used uh, in their day to describe suing someone. So we know that's exactly what was going on. Christians were suing other Christians in the secular courts. The word another in your Bible might be translated as neighbor, um, but the word another is actually the best translation here, and it means those within the body of Christ. And then it uses the word unrighteous, and it doesn't refer to their morality that these these judges or these courts in which they were taking their cases were uh, immoral, it means simply that their spiritual position was of, uh, of those Corinthians were higher as believers than those in the courts, okay? So they were taking their issues to secular courts, to godless courts in order to be tried and cleared up. So the public judges and jurors, just to be clear, the public judges and jurors were unsaved and therefore unjustified and by extension, unrighteous. So these Christians were bringing lawsuits against other Christians before unbelievers. And because of this, Paul was both shocked and it grieved him as well. And as you'll see, he believed it ought not to be so. Paul already knew the answer to the question that he began with, and so it makes this question then rhetorical. He was saying, how can it be, is it really true that some of you are actually suing one another? And to make matters worse, you're doing it in public and you're doing it in the the pagan courts. You're, You're allowing the foolishness of the world to make judgments that should be settled in the body of Christ. And he uses the word dare. You dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So, really interesting passage here. That word dare is a verb, tomeo, and is in the present tense, meaning this was a problem that was continuous. It was ongoing. It wasn't a one and done thing. This was a practice that these Corinthian believers had gotten into suing one another. So Paul didn't really care that the believers might not get a fair hearing in the public courts. That's not what he was talking about. Um, It was possible, obviously, um, men in the courts and, and jurors have the, I guess, the, the wherewithal to make basic moral judgments, right? So once in a while they could get it right. What's the old saying that, that even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, right? Even a, a blind pig finds a truffle every once in a while. So even the ungodly can get it right once in a while because they're a very basic human Uh, morals that we all abide by, but Paul here was more concerned because they showed very little respect and understanding of the church's real authority and the church's ability as the body of Christ to settle its own disputes within the body of Christ. And so there's a major understanding that not only the Corinthians needed to have, but also the the modern body of Christ. We need to have this understanding as well. And sometimes, when you see the contrast of how we act today as the church, and what Paul was um, exhorting them or disciplining them back then to uh, to conform to a godly, more spiritual way of living, it really we see the contrast well, gee, that's not how we do it today. I wonder what happened. Are we supposed to do it that way? And the answer is yes. We're supposed to abide by what Scripture says. So um, he's saying this understanding. Christians are members of Christ's own body. That's a big deal. His very own spirit indwells us. Do you understand? God has taken up residence within His believing body. Individually, individually. And corporately, Christians are referred to as saints. They are the holy ones of God. They have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. Those who are enriched in Him, the Word says, and those who are not lacking in any gift, that's us. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And then we are His representatives In the earth today. Do you understand how important that is? That God has a witness in the earth today, and that's you and I in the body of Christ. We represent God. And to the world, how we act and how we live, whether or not we actually live the way we believe, is a testament to the world of whether or not we really believe what we say we believe. So Paul is flabbergasted here. How can you even think? of taking your problems outside of your spiritual family to be settled. You have the source of truth, of wisdom, of equality, of justice, of love and of kindness, of generosity and understanding. You have all of that wisdom right there in your hands in the form of the Word of God. You have it all at your disposal. And with that, in addition, the Holy Spirit is available to you to illuminate matters to you that the unrighteous world and the unrighteous courts simply do not have access to. Amen? So they are founded upon human wisdom, and the church is founded upon godly wisdom. Therefore, Christians are not to take other Christians to worldly courts. And when we put ourselves under the authority of the world in this way, we are publicly confessing that we do not have the right biblical mindset, all right? So we're not thinking the way Christians, biblical Christians are supposed to think, and we are not acting in the way biblical Christians ought to act. And so it's really important. Let's, let's just face it. When we look at this situation, believers who go to court with other believers are more concerned usually about themselves than they are their Christian neighbor, and the believer's reality should be to love our neighbors before we love ourselves, right? That's what Jesus said, and we've even been told by Jesus to love your enemies. So we really have no excuse. We've got no leg to stand on, if you will. The main reason for one brother or sister to take another to a, an ungodly worldly court is that they are selfishly more concerned with getting revenge or some sort of financial gain or receiving some gain than they are with protecting the unity of the body and bringing glory to Jesus Christ. So issues between Christians should be settled by and among Christians in the context of the local church body under the leadership of the pastor and elders of that local church even if the issue rises to the level that would usually cause Someone to sue. So, this is really interesting for us to think about the context that we really have a low view of the church today and what the church is supposed to do in the lives of the believers. We're supposed to be able to come together and have disputes and have those in godly authority in the church actually settle disputes among believers, just like they did all the way back there uh, when Moses had to settle the disputes, and and pick godly men from among them to help them settle those disputes among the the Israelites out in the wilderness. Okay, That's been God's, uh, the way He's done it all the way back then. So, if this is supposed to be how the local church works, how badly then have we veered off track? There is no accountability among believers anymore. Very little. Um, It's mostly because believers won't commit to the unity of a local church, right? Um, They will not commit to staying with a group of people no matter what, no matter the circumstances. And I think the church suffers for that. Many Christians today treat faithfulness to the local church with about as much fortitude as they do their marriage vows, uh, when we've got the divorce rate among Christians uh, in some cases even higher than unbelievers. And, of course, we know there are many different reasons for that to take place. So I'm not throwing stones here, but the bottom line is, shouldn't we understand or shouldn't, shouldn't we, as the body of Christ, shouldn't those, those uh, what do you call them, statistics among the church and the world be kind of different? Shouldn't there be a difference there? And of course, we all know we've made mistakes in the past. And again, that's I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody who, who has gone through a divorce or anything like that. But what I'm trying to say is that there should be a contrast between the way the world acts and the way the church acts. And when it comes to faithfulness to a local church saying, this is my family, these are my people, we just don't have the intestinal fortitude that I believe God's Word asks of us as followers of Christ. So, um, today they approach it as, and specifically when I talk about marriage, it's like, oh, well, I'm unhappy. Well, I fell out of love. I'm out, right? We're out of this divorce. Well, they treat the church the same way. I, I don't like the fact that they... Their kids ministry. I don't like their kids ministry over there at that church. They have a bounce house, so we're gonna go over there, right? We're gonna move our kids over there because the bounce house is really what Scripture tells us is is what is required uh, for the church. Um, of course, there's nothing wrong with the bounce house. You know, you know what I'm trying to. Uh, to get at uh, here, what about the preacher? The preacher says something theologically that I may not agree with, right? We have differences of opinion about specific passages. We don't have to agree on everything. We need to agree on the main things and and we need to have unity within even those disagreements so we're not uh, fighting and and throwing stones at one another. So um, we find ourselves today in a situation where there is scarce unity within the body of Christ. There is scarce accountability in the body of Christ, and there is scarce humility in the body of Christ, which leads to the scarcity of actual faithfulness to the local body of Christ. And this is his church. He said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If it's Christ's church and we truly love Him, should we not be absolutely committed to His church? And when we find a group of people, we treat them just like our family, the point at which we would take a bullet for one another. We would be there no matter what for one another. And that is what it's all about. We submit ourselves within the biblical context of the authority of that local church. That means... By giving, that means by serving, that means by being there for one another. When, when one of us is mourning, the others mourn with you and serve you during that time. We are there for one another. We are a family stronger than blood. What scriptures say, that there is a, um, there's a love, that a, a bond, a bond that, that is stronger than a brother, right? And, and that's what the body of Christ is. So... Again, no matter what the issues, whether marriage, we're helping one another through that. If there are issues of morality, we're walking through one another and, and taking one another through a process of restoration, even in a moral failure. And if there are issues of immodesty or gossip or uh, unruly children or prodigal children when they get older, we are bearing one another's burdens. We are walking through life together and we are helping one another through those times. That is my my hope and my heart for this church is that we would grow and protect the unity of this church and be a family unlike anything you've ever experienced in your past when it comes to the context of the local church. That is what I'm hoping for and praying for. So whatever you face personally, the body of Christ is here to help you in every way. And in so doing, they bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ and they are a godly witness to the lost world. They are groping in darkness as the old hymn says, millions grope in darkness. And there is a light, a city on a hill that they can look towards and they see the church acting the way the church ought to act and living the way the church ought to live. And they run to that light. There's something there that they are desperate for, and that's what the church is all about. But if we look just like the world, if there's morality, immorality in the church, the same way the world practices immorality, there's no contrast of darkness and light, and there's nothing for them to see or run to. Do you understand how important that is? So Paul insists that Christians are able in this context to solve disputes amongst themselves always. To make his case, he points to the true spiritual position of the church. In the next passage, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts? Now, this is really interesting because he delves into eschatology here, which is the study of end times or end things. Okay, And our expectation for the end times and our position of authority as believers is what he's trying to make a point here. And this is really exciting for those of you who may not have studied this before. Um, Here's what he's basically saying. If you are one day in the future going to reign with Christ and sit in authority in God's supreme court over the world, aren't you even now qualified enough to judge even the small everyday issues among you? When Jesus Christ returns to set up His millennial kingdom, that is a 1,000-year reign upon which Christ will, will rule and reign on this earth in bodily form, then He will bring with Him believers all throughout history, and they will be given the authority to rule with Him as His representatives all across the globe. And as stated they will be sitting with Him on His throne, meaning He is going to share His power during that period of time with those of us who are, have been faithful to Him. If you'll turn to Revelation 3.21, Revelation 3.21, it says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Okay? In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Daniel 7, 21 and 22. He says, Daniel says, I kept looking and that horn, which which in this passage is the Antichrist, uh, that horn was waging war with the saints and overcoming them until the Ancient of Days, that's Christ, came and the judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one. So again, saints from the past, from the present, and all those who will trust in Christ uh, and call on His name during the tribulation, they will have the responsibility as rulers with Christ, and they will be judging the world. And that's what Paul is referencing here. And we see that in Scripture in Matthew 19, 28. That's Matthew 19, 28, if you're taking notes. We see the 12 apostles will have a special authority that they will rule from 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus himself told them that that was what was going to take place. Every single one of them died and that never happened, which means what? Either Jesus was fibbing to them, which we know is not the case, or there's a future reality in which Christ himself will fulfill every promise to Israel and to these apostles. But every single believer will participate in some way, I believe, according to their reward given at the Bama seat. We covered this recently, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will stand before Christ, and we will have our thoughts, our words, and our deeds judged by His holy discernment. And it's described like a fire that is purifying gold, silver, precious stones, or burning up wood, hay, or stubble. And the wood, hay, and stubble are disingenuous acts of believers. They, of course, are burned up, turned to ash. But if there are genuine works of believers that they did for Christ's name, for His sake and for His glory and not for our own, the Bible tells us that they will remain and then that person will receive a reward. And me personally, I believe that reward will determine to what extent in the millennial reign you will serve with Jesus Christ in that millennial kingdom. So in speaking of tribulation saints, just to throw a a few more verses out here for you to look over and mull over, Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Jesus says, "...He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. Once again, we see this authority is going to be extended from Jesus to the saints and they are going to help rule and reign uh, with him. What did Jesus say to the believers in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5? He says, blessed are the meek for they, and that means those who submit to his lordship, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. This is, a, this is pointing to the believers who put their faith and trust in Him that one day they will inherit the authority to rule and reign with Him over the earth. In Revelation 19, 7-14, you can turn there if you'd like. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read uh, several passages here. Revelation 19, 7-14, we get a glimpse of what I call future history. It's going to happen, as if it's already happened, but it is yet to come in the future. Revelation 19, 7 through 14. Let us rejoice and be glad and give uh, the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So there are those, those works. There's the reward. Then He said to me, Write, write, Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at His feet to worship Him. But He said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the witness of Jesus. Worship God, for the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful. And true, and, and in righteousness He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on His head are many crowns, having a name written on Him which no one knows except Himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following with Him on white horses." We return to rule and reign with Christ. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God, and who also had not worshipped the beast or in his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Every single human being that has called out on the name of Jesus Christ and put their faith in God will be raised up to reign with Christ during that time. An amazing truth. So Paul, knowing this truth, he said, if the saints will one day help rule the entire earth, they surely are able to rule themselves within the church now. That future rule will be based again, on the adherence to the Word of God, our obedience, the proper godly attitudes that we have toward one another and toward the Lord, okay? And our ability to discern the Word of God, to rightly divide it and actually live by the truth of the Word. And these believers at Corinth were not only neglecting ruling over themselves in the local body, but they were making a spectacle of themselves in front of the lost out in the world. They were bringing shame and reproach to the purpose of the church itself, airing their pride, their their sinful nature, their carnality, their greed in front of the world to see. In verse 6, he says, he takes it a little further and he says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life. So Paul says here that believers will one day even judge angels. And, and we don't know, Scripture isn't really clear about what this exactly means. We know that these fallen spiritual beings, these fallen Elohim, will be judged by the Lord. If you want to jot down a few verses to look at uh, outside of this message, 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 talks of these angels being judged. We don't know if, Believers will participate in that. We don't have evidence in Scripture. But this Greek word, uh, krino, for judge, also means to rule or govern over. So I'll share with you what I actually think it means. It means that if we are to have authority in this millennial reign, that it's likely we will have authority over the angels of God as well. Uh, They don't have sin that we would judge. So if it's not the fallen angels, I think God can take care of them. If it's not them, then it's more than likely this. It is because we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us and because the angels are described in Scripture from the very beginning as ministers of God, that they attend to Him and His will and they attend to uh, His servants on the earth If we have the Spirit of God indwelling us and we are ruling and reigning with Him, it's likely that these angels during that time will attend to us and carry out the will of God on our behalf as judges and rulers of the earth. They're going to be there to help. So imagine this reality in which you and I have our glorified bodies, right? We're incorruptible. We have the wisdom of Christ because He's given us all knowledge at that point. And we are given the authority to rule and reign, and the angels are our servants. And we have authority even over the angels during that time to bring about God's will upon the earth at that time. So he's saying here, surely we are capable under the guidance of Scripture and the Holy Spirit to settle any matters that would arise among yourselves today in the local church body. Are you guys getting the point? it's pretty obvious when you really start to look at it. And verse 4 is difficult to translate, and it, it was in various commentaries that I, I looked at um, when it comes to specific wording, but the basic meaning is clear. That when Christians have issues among themselves, it is egregious that they would take those matters outside of the church to be judged by unbelievers who use only worldly wisdom. As Paul calls, calls them, you appoint those who are of no account in the church as judges. Verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it really this way? There's not one wise man among you who will be able to pass judgment between his brothers. Verse 6, on the contrary, brother is tried with brother, and that even before unbelievers. Again, he's just kind of shocked at this behavior. I say this to your shame. And then we've seen in previous chapters, Paul has a little, a little edge about him. He likes to get sarcastic once in a while. And so he says, Is it so that there is not among you one, just one person that is capable of making these righteous judgments who will be able to decide between brother and brother who have grievances with one another? No. Brother goes to law with brother, and at that, as a spectacle before all the unbelievers. You see... There's one thing that should distinguish the body of Christ from the world. One thing specifically that they should see, and that is our love for one another. We should truly love one another. In 1 1 John 3, 10 and 11, John makes it clear that anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor of the one who does not love his brother. If you don't love your brother, then the love of God, the love of Christ, is not in you. For this is the message which you have heard from the very beginning, that we should love one another. There's no way around that, folks. The body of Christ, the local body, the local church, should love one another. That should be evident to all. So love was not what stood out among the Corinthian brothers and sisters at that time in that city and Paul, of course, will address this later on in chapter 13, but they were acting like they were the unredeemed. They were acting like they were the world, like they were unsaved. And, and again, Paul says in a few chapters later, chapter 13, he says, without love, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. How many of you guys uh, love music? How many of you guys love to hear cymbals clanging with no other music and accompaniment. Just Aaron, you don't count. You're a drummer. You're a drummer, okay? That doesn't count. But he's saying, how annoying would it be to just hear cymbals over and over and over without any context of other music? The church is its love should be like a symphony. And 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 when you are acting in such a way that you are unloving. It is like you are just banging symbols together. And basically, he goes on to say in chapter 13, he says, in fact, without love, you are nothing. You are nothing without love. So sometimes in our society, issues... Now, this is important to point out here, okay? Because you may have these questions in your mind. Well, aren't there times where going to the courts is necessary for a believer? And the answer is, of course, yes, there are. And let me explain to you why. There are times in which... Uh, Christians cannot help but take their matters or their issues to a secular court because we are told as believers to adhere to the laws of the land. And some of these laws are intertwined with the issues of our lives. And so when it is something that has to do with the government or something that the government has a hand in, then we have to go to those courts in order to do that. So for instance, when a Christian is being divorced by his or her spouse, the law requires that a secular court be involved. And so, obviously, if the law requires that, then the church needs to adhere to that and and do so. In the case of child abuse or neglect, a Christian parent may be forced to seek court protection from a backslidden former spouse, or perhaps they married uh, someone who wasn't a true believer in the first place. And, of course... There are often consequences to those sorts of decisions. But in those kinds of exceptions, um, when a Christian finds themselves in a situation where going to a secular court is unavoidable, your purpose should always still be to glorify God in the matter. That, you're never excused from that. That is our goal in everything. Listen, everything we say, every word, And everything we do, every act, we should honor God. And so even in the case of having no choice but to go to a secular court, we should want to honor God in every way so that when people see what's going on in the proceedings, they see that at least you're acting in a Christ-like manner to whatever extent you possibly can. So the general rule for the body of Christ is this. Do not go to court with fellow Christians but settle issues, settle matters among yourselves. You've heard the saying that sometimes when you win, you actually lose. You guys ever heard that saying? I know husbands have. I know the husbands have heard it because I've heard it, and I know that to be the truth. Sometimes you can win, but you actually lose. And I know, ladies, you wives, I know you probably feel the same way. I can't speak to that because I'm not a wife, okay? But Paul is saying that when this happens in the body of Christ, even if you win the court case, sometimes you lose. You understand? Uh, in, in chapter 6, verse seven, 7, he says, Actually then, it's already failure for you that you have lawsuits with one another. And then listen what he asks. This is, this is pretty interesting. Why not rather be wronged? Why not take the blow? Why not just take it? Why not rather be defrauded. I have a buddy, a real good friend, known him for years. And he has a very good friend that he's known for years, that has worked for him for years. And this friend, he believes, was um, talking with another company. He's been faithful to this man, paid him excellent wages for years. And he was talking to another company and believed that he was trying to steal some of his clientele right they're both professing Christians and I said so just kind of in our conversation I said so would you ever even consider taking him to court and he goes no no I would never do that and that's the attitude of the Christian if it's a brother you know it's a brother it's better y'all it's better to be self-sacrificial and take the blow because the blow that you take just like Jesus took blows right We as the body of Christ absorb those blows and we turn it around and we give love. That's what we do and that is the most powerful witness in the world that you can ever imagine. That's the point. Can I get an amen? Hard, huh? Hard. The gospel and the witness of the church is more important. Bringing glory to God is more important than any revenge that we may want to get financial gain that we may want to get and coming from someone who has a, an extremely huge sense of justice, okay? I can't stand injustice. When I don't like it when the bad guy wins, okay? I've always been that way. It's a problem, okay? But he's saying, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded And let God get the revenge and let God get the justice because only He will get perfect justice. You can take them to court and maybe you'll win, but the courts are imperfect. There's coming a day where that person will stand before a holy God and they will give an account for how they wronged you and only He knows how to get perfect justice. And so there are times, folks, in which we just throw our cares and those grievances that we have that tear us up inside, that we just give them over to the Lord in order that we might have peace. Okay, that's important. We need to have peace in order that we might have peace and in order that we might be a light and a witness to the lost world. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, he says, On the contrary, you yourselves, you yourselves, wrong and defraud. It's not only that you're taking each other to court, but you're the bad guys. I got a little passionate there. (laughs) You're acting like the bad guys. May it never, ever, ever be. He says you do this even to your brothers. So the truth comes out once again. There has been an eternal change in every true believer. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And as I said, it requires you as a follower of Christ to do what he did to take up your cross and follow him and take the blows take your blows you don't always have to win and you don't always get your way and it's hard i'll say we had this discussion this week religious freedom somehow some way we got the idea that in America that the christian deserves religious freedom but, but God's Word never promises that. God's Word says that we are to take up our cross and follow Him. We've enjoyed religious freedom in this country. It's a wonderful thing that we've been allowed to take part in. And we've lived in this very interesting period of human history in this, the most uh, powerful, the most prosperous, the most peaceful nation of the world. And you and I got to be a part of that for however long it lasted. But we're not pr- promised that that's going to last. There may be a day in which we have to hide away, as the first century Christians did, in catacombs to worship together. So the question is, are you devoted enough to the church that if it came to that, you would still gather together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if your life was in danger? Is that how committed you are to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His local body, the church? So, that, folks... I think I've given you enough to think about this week, and uh, next week we're going to pick up in Revelation, and then after that we're, we're getting into another powerful passage as well that I think God's Word answers so many questions, and we have so many people today who are just completely untethered from the truth of Scripture, yet they wear the badge of Christianity They are playing a part. They are playing a role. They are pretending. But when the Holy Spirit indwells you, there's no pretending. There's life change. You can't help but change. And it it transforms everything about you. And the things that you once loved, the sin, as they say, that I once leapt into, now I loathe. Now when I blow it, when I say something I, I shouldn't say, when I treat someone the way they shouldn't be treated, man, it tears me up inside. And I go to the Lord and I ask for forgiveness. There's a difference in a person who knows the Lord. And the things, the world, the practices of the world, we can't do those things and be okay with it. It's just not the way it's meant to be. He's called us to be His representatives and His witnesses in the earth. That's us. We're it, the church. So, folks, this church, Bright Star Bible Church, We will do everything in our power as God gives us, uh, affords us the ability to. We will do everything in our power to be a light to a dark world and a city on the hill. Amen? I want you to be a part of that. I want you to be a big part of that. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that we have in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you took our blows, that you took the injustice that we ourselves trespassed against the Holy Father. We thank you that you loved us and you called us out. And so, Father, teach us how to walk in your footsteps and how to love the way you love, and how to love one another the way you have designed the church to love one another. Lord, we know that this world is a harsh and difficult place. We know that they rely on... Godlessness and foolishness, Lord, and, and they believe that they're so smart, so intelligent, and they have no need of you. They deny you at every turn. But Father, we will not. We are your church, and we will stand in the gap, and we will proclaim the gospel no matter what it costs, and we will be committed to your church and to your people, one another as a family, no matter what. That's our heart for you, Lord God. We pray that you will give us the strength and courage to do so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.